<laughs> Surprise. I have an opportunity. It's been over a year and a half since I was up here delivering a message to you. As um, I mentioned last week, and as many of you know, I spent about a year and a half uh, serving as an interim pastor at Harris Covenant Church up in Harris, Minnesota, which was a real joy. In fact, we have some visitors here today from there, so yay! <laughs> uh, um, we're in this series on human sexuality, and uh, before we get too far into it, though, I want to acknowledge something about um, Pat Soderberg's contribution to, to not necessarily this message, but to the ministry of this church. She, I, I tell you, this, this church has been bathed in prayer by, by our dear sister, Pat, and uh, I'm just waiting for God to bring forth the answers to those prayers. Some of that was what Eric and the team were just singing about, bringing revival. There's no, nothing that God can't fix. And I, I'm more and more aware of our need for revival, for a move of God, a move of His Spirit in our midst. Let's take hold of that because I think as we pursue God and ask for that, he will be gracious and granted to us. It's the cry of his heart, too. We're just coming into agreement with him. And isn't that what faith is? Agreeing with God. Today we're going to be looking at this issue of marriage. Um, Brad has done some teaching on that. I'll comment on that as we go. Um, but today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read a good part of it. Sherry will be coming up to, to read that, so I'll... Uh, Invite her while you're pulling out your Bible there. I'll invite her to come up and read that for us. It's already on. Verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
and a husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs, her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Thank you, Sherry. Okay, uh, a lot there, a lot to... A lot to look at. One of, one of the things that I think is important for us uh, when we view passages like this is that the old, what comes to mind is that old saying, um, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. You guys familiar with that? That's That statement, well, what that means is it's really important as we look at specifics, in other words, the trees, individual trees, uh, that Paul is unpacking here, that we need to step back and see the bigger picture of what he's trying to communicate. What, what is it? What's the backdrop for all of this? And frankly, the backdrop to the Corinthians was that, like our culture today, it was highly sexually charged. Highly sexually charged. A lot of activity. In fact, in the previous chapter, Paul has to identify that it's inappropriate, I think Brad has preached on this, it's inappropriate to have sexual relations with a prostitute because of this oneness. Brad has done a great job of unpacking for us uh, this, this concept of God's intention from the beginning. And one of the things that we have to realize is that a lot of what the Lord has uh, told us in Scripture is basically best described as damage control. It's how do we control things in the absence of his full life and expression in us. 
And that's what the law was all about. If, if you recall, Jesus was asked about, um, well, it was actually a, 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 a question by the Sadducees to trip him up uh, on life after death because uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in spirits or life after death. And they asked him a question about, um, you know, a man takes a wife, and according to Jewish law, um, if, if the husband um, dies then, and, he, and is childless, then the brother of the husband is to take that woman as his wife. So they, they give this perplexing story about whose wife will she be in the resurrection if she was married to, well, I think it was seven different brothers in, in the story. And it was meant to trip Jesus up. But his, his response was rather interesting. You are misinformed. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he clarifies that in the resurrection, there is no more marriage. In the resurrection, there will be no marriage. Now, I don't recall what the Lord says about when we pass into heaven in the meantime, because the resurrection isn't talking about going to heaven. It's talking about when we are reunited with a, a regenerated body to rule, rule and reign with Christ on the earth. And so marriage seems to be uh, an institution that God has ordained for here and now. What it will be in eternity appears to be uh, questionable. But so many things about eternity are unknown to us, and uh, we just have to trust that God's got a really good plan, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, that's kind of the context. And like you say, in chapter 6, Paul is actually addressing sexual immorality, a uh, number of other factors as well. And in fact, you'll see at the beginning of chapter 7 here, about the matter that you wrote to me, uh, so he's talking about the Corinthians have, have obviously in some way communicated to him the, the question they had. Uh, we can infer from his answer what the question was, and it had to do with marriage and sexuality. I mean, that's what he's talking about right here, and he's addressing that question. But it's, it's also important to recognize that Paul's answer must be seen in terms of his broader understanding of God's purpose, both for marriage and for life in the kingdom. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. So, like love, right, if we start looking at the trees that Paul is talking about, the individual trees, and we are not looking at them from the filter of uh, the kingdom of God and God's heart to love one another and prefer one another, we can misuse these passages. And in fact, some have. I mentioned in the EU newsletter about um, the passage where the woman's body is not her own but her husband's and vice versa has sadly been used by some to demand sexual fulfillment. But that's not Paul's intention here. We need to love one another and prefer one another. And for the sake of the marriage, it might be good to set it aside for a bit if it's going to bring harm to the other person. And so we have to step back from some of the specifics to see God's heart. What is God's heart in all of this? And most certainly, it's a couple of things. One, love. Now, if we don't know what love looks like, we should, we should search the Scriptures to find out because what does the Scripture say? God is what? God is love. And if God is love, then it behooves us to know what love is because we are made in His image. We are image bearers. We are meant 
to know his love and let it be expressed through us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in this same letter, Paul addresses love uh, to some measure. Love is patient, love is kind. It's not self-seeking or seeking its own. It, it um, bears much, it, you know, etc. I'm not going to quote the whole thing. I can't remember it all, and I've read it in too many translations. I probably get the words all mixed up. But the point is that we need to understand that love is really others-oriented. God is others-oriented. Did you know that? Love is. Relationship is others-oriented. It cares more about the, the relationship and the benefit of another than it does even its own rights. It looks more at how you can respond positively to the life of God to express his nature to others than it does looking at your own gratification or fulfillment or even your own rights for that matter. We live in a culture that, and, and a lot of us have been steeped in this idea of our rights. You know, the gospel is not about our rights. It's about our commitment to lay down our lives. If we're always seeking our own rights, we're not laying down our lives for a bigger cause or the cause of Christ or to love one another. We're demanding that our rights be that which we exercise and that others respect those rights. This is, so this American thing is really in some ways counter the gospel. And, you know, Brad has talked about what John Mark Comer has indicated, that the enemy comes in with deceptive ideas, right? The deceptive ideas play into our disordered desires and ultimately become normalized in a sinful, broken world or society. Well, there's a lot of baggage that we all carry. And a lot of that baggage may have to do with our understanding of sexuality and love. I'll tell you, most of the time when the world is talking about making love, they're talking about having sex. And love often has little to do with it. But love has to be the foundation of all that we do it has to become the foundation of all that we are. All that we are. That means we're not filtering things based on what we want in our natural man. It means we are evaluating things based on God's intentions to bring forth life. And that's so important in marriage, if a marriage is going to succeed. Now, if you're married, you've probably been through some struggles. Paul, in this passage, is saying, you know, <laughs> uh, don't fall under the delusion that if you get married, all of your problems are going to go away. <laughs> la, la, land, okay. <laughs> Whenever you get people in close proximity and their own ideas and understanding of things, you're going to have some conflict but it's also a beautiful opportunity to learn to love <laughs> because apart from that, uh, maybe the opportunities aren't as prevalent, but it's in your face all the time. 
we need to learn to love like Christ and respond like him. So Paul actually gives a caution here. He gives a caution about marriage. Maybe, maybe don't rush into it. Don't, it's not going to be the end all. It's not going to be the thing that brings you life. God can use marriage, and it can be life-giving, and it is intended to be. But let's step back again. Let's take a look at the forest. What's the context that Paul is bringing these words? It's that if we're not careful, whatever decisions we make may make it more challenging for us to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. He says, I think it's in verse 7, um, if you have your Bibles handy, you know, I, I basically wish that you were all like me and, and single. He's single. Paul was a single man. Uh, a, a rare exception for uh, somebody in his culture, but he was a single man. And he was committed to remaining that way so that he was not divided with respect to his his passion and his intention to bring forth the kingdom of God. I wish that you were as I am, he says. But he also says in verse 7, but let it be according to whatever gift you have from God. Now that word gift, this is going to be interesting for some of you, that word gift is the word Charisma in the Greek. Charisma. You see, we, we tend to think as soon as we hear the word charisma of charismatic, but just know that charisma is, there's many forms of charisma, or the, the root of that word is charis, which is grace. So it's a grace gift, okay? Now, there are, according to um, Paul's teaching in, in, uh, in this same book, 1 Corinthians, um, 12, many pneuma charisma or spiritual gifts, pneumatico is, is what it really means, gifts. And we, we talk in terms of that of charisma, but you remember, and in, in usually used in more archaic English language, where we talk about people having charisma, it has nothing to do with a spiritual gift necessarily, but it is a grace gift. Because charisma is, comes from grace. It is rooted in God's capacity. It gives us a capacity to step into to life knowing that God is with us and this capacity is given to us. There may be, it may be in the natural realm. You might be a natural giver. Because God has given you a charisma of giving, a gift of giving. Or it might be something that's expressly spiritual and that the Holy Spirit gives as a special spiritual endowment that can't be measured in terms of natural giftings. doesn't matter. It's still a grace gift. Either way, it's still a gift of God's grace. So now, I'm telling you that by biblical definition, every one of you is a charismatic. (laughs) Every one of you who has gifts from God of any kind, and that's all of us, you have been given charisma. And a charismatic is one who exercises charisma. 
Welcome to the world of charismatics. All right. You know, sometimes our usage divides, and it's not intended to do that. We need to see all the gifts that we possess, all the capacities that God has given us as an operation of his grace because we don't earn them anyway, do we? Welcome, fellow charismatics. What is he talking about here? The gifts that God has given you. He's talking about not marriage. He's not saying, well, marriage can be a gift. I'm, don't read me wrong. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's a curse or anything like that. Uh, he's, he's saying that we are to respond based on the capacities God has put in us by his grace. The capacity that God has given us is what we should function from. Now, he recognizes very early on in this discussion that lust is a big issue, ostensibly both for men and women. Clearly, my experience with people is that it, it's more of a function of a, an issue with men, but it is also an issue with women. And because of that, Paul says it's better that you marry than to burn with lust. So he's, he's allowing in this context that if, if we have not been graced with or haven't developed the gift of being able to stand uh, with victory in this area, as an accommodation, it's better that we marry in, and therefore have the opportunity within a lawful marriage to exercise our sexuality. But he, he doesn't say that he's called us like um, his invitation is for all of us to be married, nor does he say he's calling us or inviting us all into singleness. And in fact, I don't believe that the charisma is to be single, for those who are single and want to remain that way. The charisma is the capacity to be okay with being single the capacity to have victory continuously over the lust, the desire, which, of course, is increasingly difficult in a culture that continuously bombards us with sexual imagery and messages. But So what I'm saying here is don't say, oh, God, God has gifted me to be single. God has gifted you with the capacity to overcome and be victorious against your passions so that singleness doesn't drive you mad. I know, I've known a lot of people who have been single and they're single um, by choice. And I know a lot of people who are single because there has not been an open door to marriage. So there's, there's many different motivations that come into play here in terms of how we view uh, singleness even. 
There may be other reasons for remaining single, but Paul says the reason is so that you can be wholly devoted to Christ. That's the reason that he gives in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. So that you're not distracted by the need to please another person and meet material needs within the context of marriage, but rather that you can be wholly devoted to the Lord. That's, a, that's an admirable reason to be single. A good reason. But are all reasons equally as good for being single if, in fact, you want to be single because you want to be selfish? How does that fit in? Well, the apostle doesn't directly address that here but it's counter to the biblical message because he wants us to love and give and where better to do that than in relationships. Of course, we need relationships. Some of us are more on the introverted side, some of us on the extroverted. I'm kind of an ambivert. I'm, I can go either way. But uh, maybe you like being alone. And for you, you need God to give you a grace to step into relationships. Not necessarily marriage, but I mean any type of relationship, right? Because we need one another. Whether you're married or not, we need one another. But I, maybe it's the title of my message up there. To wed or not to wed? That is the question. Do you kind of recognize that line, sort of? How about to be or not to be? That is the question. It comes from Hamlet. Shakespeare wrote, that's a scene three, act one. To be or not to be? That is the question. And of course, in, in the context of Hamlet, uh, Hamlet is considering taking his own life because of the problems in his life. Well, I know that for some people, being single, they see as a big problem. One that is very perplexing because their heart is that they want to be in a marital relationship. Maybe it's for the same reason that Paul has identified early on there, that there's this the desire within them for sexual gratification or fulfillment that they don't have a legitimate means to express. Now, firstly, I'd say, while you're in that state of singleness, seek the Lord for a charisma, a gift, to remain pure in that state. But should God open the door to marriage, it's interesting because Paul says in this, in this series of passages, if you get married, it's not a sin. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all in trouble. But he also says if you remain single, it's not a sin. So we're not talking about a choice that is sinful or not. In fact, Paul is very gracious in this whole section about this area of sexuality. I, I know he's aware of his audience and that some of them are probably quite broken due to the sexual expression within their their cultural context, which is not unlike what we face today. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of confusion. And he wants to make sure that we're brought back to the heart of God. So he says at least two or three times in here that it's not even him, I mean, it's, it's not the Lord's command, but it's the wisdom that God has given to him and, and uh, therefore is worth consideration. 
just kind of a little bit of a bunny trail, one of the, one of the things we have to remember is that Paul, who was so much against having to uh, observe every detail of the Mosaic law in order to be justified, we are sometimes too quick to suggest that his words create law for us. In the previous chapter, he says, it is for freedom. That Christ, or that's actually, uh, sorry, that's in Galatians. For freedom that Christ set you free. Be not again entangled in the Mosaic law, basically. In the previous chapter, uh, 6 of 1 Corinthians, prior to him talking about this uh, being joined with a uh, prostitute, he says, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. What is expedience? Beneficial, profitable. In other words, although you can make a case that things are lawful, because we're not, quote, under the law, not everything we choose is tov. <laughs> it's not good. There's this thing, uh, I'm still on this bunny trail, by the way. <laughs> bunny trails. I'm known for them. There's this thing where some people stand so securely in this idea that Paul lifted the law off of us that they are actually functioning from lawlessness rather than by the Spirit. We have to understand that the lifting of law from us was to bring us into the control of the Spirit, and if we're not seeking the Spirit for the Spirit's control in our life, then we are working from our flesh, which is the spirit of lawlessness. Oh, I don't have to do that, brother. That's, we're not under the law anymore. You know we're going to hear that? You talk about people giving or tithing. Yeah, you're not under the law. But are you being led by the Spirit? That's the question. Or are you just being led by your flesh now that you've been relieved from the law? In some cases, I would recommend that you go back under the law to understand God's heart. Then live from your flesh thinking you're free from law if you're not under the influence and control of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8. The law and the, sp the spirit of love and life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. If we live by the Spirit, we must walk by the Spirit. Paul didn't relieve us from the law. Christ didn't relieve us from the law so that we would be lawless and live whatever we wanted to. He brought us out from the law because the law in itself doesn't produce righteousness, right relationship. It doesn't earn anything for us, but it does reveal to us the heart of God. God's nature is to give. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. You're not under, uh, you're not under a law to give, but you are under a law to love and live by the Spirit. 
So let us seek to live according to the Spirit in all that we do. And then the law doesn't become that big of a deal because we're living by the Spirit. The Spirit always reveals the life of God, the nature of God. God's Word to us expresses His desire for us And his desire is that we function according to his nature, which he has given to us. Okay, that was a long bunny trail. So what are some of the trees that Paul looks at? Well, he's actually dealing in this passage with five different, essentially, statuses of life with respect to marriage. He's talking about single, and by that, unmarried, or those who have never been married, He's talking about those who are engaged. Are you betrothed or you know, committed to a, a spouse? He's talking to those who are married. He's talking to those who have been separated or divorced. And he's talking to those who are widows. Five different classifications or uh, different contexts there. And the one about separated, by the way, uh, there's, there's a little bit different perspective that Paul might bring to his Hebraic audience than he would from the Gentile audience because in the, the Hebraic thing, there was a difference between being separated or put away in a marriage from giving a certificate of divorce, which allows a person to become free. Okay. So just know that that nuance is, is there, and his audience probably was aware of it. But what does he say? No matter what state we find ourselves, stay in that state. His, his big picture now, his 30,000 you know, bird's eye view or whatever you want to call it, is the time is short. Now if the time was short in Paul's day, how many know it's shorter now? <laughs> Do the math. It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> they had a, a very strong sense that the Lord could return in their day. And I think God has gifted every generation, if we're willing to see that, with the notion that Christ could return eminently so that we are prepared and not getting lax in our devotion. I know that when I was a young man, I was convinced that the Lord was coming but before the end of the 80s were over, he'd be back. <laughs> and so when I hear people say, oh boy, things have gotten really bad, he's going to be returning. It sure feels that way. It does feel that way. But I don't know. Neither do you. None of us know. The question before us is not when is the Lord returning, but are we ready for it when it happens? One way or another, we're going to meet the Lord. Whether he comes back and calls us up or whether he takes us home like Pat. We all have an appointed time. The question, are we living our life for him? So whether you're single, whether you're married, the invitation here from Paul is seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And basically he'll take care of the rest. 
Each place that we find ourselves, whether in singleness, whether married, whether engaged, whether widowed, we have an opportunity to experience Christ right there. If he should open a door to something else, that's fine. I, I want to just challenge us in this area of singleness because I think it's important. Now, as you know, the culture has totally devalued marriage, <laughs> right? wasn't always that way in America. Marriage was held in high esteem, but this culture really has diminished significantly the importance of marriage and commitment. You'll notice in verse 2, when Paul talks about each man should have his wife and each um, woman his, her husband, he's talking about monogamy. One and one. Even though in mostly Jewish history there was quite a bit of polygamy still in existence. That's my reminder of the time, by the way. So I'm going to have to wrap it up. Where do you find yourself? One of the things that we have to do as a church culture, and some of us who have been around for a long time, probably can remember thinking that when we see somebody that's single, unless they're actively looking for somebody, we might see them as defective inferior. That can really break the heart of somebody that has desired marriage and the door is just not open to that. We need to be really okay with singleness. We need to be really okay with those who decide to remain single or are single due to no fault of their own. Whether married uh, and divorced, whether always has been single, we're talking about loving and understanding that God's call is not dependent on you being married, nor is it dependent on you being single. God's call is God's call. It's his purposeful invitation to us in whatever status we find ourselves to enter into the kingdom of God and the purposes of God to transform our lives and the lives of those around us. So let's challenge some of our stereotypes about marriage. Now, I don't believe that Paul is saying here that God's ideal is that everybody remains single. Some people have taken it to that extreme. And nor is it God's ideal that everybody be married. We have to understand that God calls us in whatever circumstance we are, and he's looking for faithfulness there. Because if we're faithful in one, maybe in the next experience of life, we will also prove faithful. But whatever, wherever we find ourselves, we are called to honor Christ, to put him first, to love well, whether in the context of marriage or in the context of friendship and other relationships, to love like Christ loved. Not to live as selfish individuals, but as the hands and feet of Christ towards others. 
Amen? We're going to spend just a few minutes here now. We typically uh, take a few minutes to examine some questions about the message and what that means in groups here. So uh, when, I dis when I dismiss you here, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll go into groups, and I'll come back after a time, and, and we'll uh, take a benediction. But uh, consider these questions. There'll be some people up here praying in case you feel you need some prayer here. Oh God, we ask for you to be with us today. We ask, oh God, that you would expose every lie that we have believed concerning our sexuality and even our need or perceived need for sexual expression. I pray that you gift your people with the charisma, the graces necessary to stand and be faithful in the midst of whatever place they are called and not consider the turmoil of being pushed to think that the grass is greener on the other side. <laughs> Lord, we need that. We need that. Revive our hearts. Renew us in you. Renew our focus and perspective on putting your kingdom and your nature and your characteristics first in all that we do. Amen. All right. Group up and I think the questions are up on the screen.